1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Dahlia Schweitzer, the author of Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World. Dahlia, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm wondering if you could start out by sharing How you got interested in this topic? What made you start to write about this? What's
0: interesting is that I've felt like the last 20 years or so of my life, when I was living them, were just all over the place. And then it's one of those interesting things, you know, like the 2020 hindsight, when I look back on it and I'm like, oh, sure. Okay, that makes sense. Um, And so I think I started off in college even being interested in depictions of identity on television. Um, And I always felt like television had this really interesting relationship to our lives and to reality that film doesn't, because television is where we get both our entertainment and our information. So I think when we go to the movies, there's this readily kind of suspension of disbelief, right? It's like, you know, you go, you sit in the chair, there's a huge screen, obviously it's not real. But with television, it's kind of funny because you can turn on the TV and unless you immediately recognize, you know, oh, hey, that's Olivia Benson on Law and Order, you're not always sure if it's a documentary, if it's news, if it's entertainment, You know, if it's one of those dramatical recreations. So I was already interested in that when I was an undergrad. And then I've continued to be interested in questions of identity and specifically when it comes to the relationship between our physical bodies and our minds right and so intimacy the way that we interact with other people um and i think one of the things that was interesting to me and i talked about this in my previous book on cindy sherman's film office killer is how did aids impact everyday intimacy and also of course how did aids into um impact portrayals of intimacy on film and television and What was interesting to me is I know when I was in high school, again, I did this like independent study that was sort of looking at portrayals of intimacy in literature about AIDS. And I, you know, I grew up, I went to high school in the early 90s. And so for me, I learned about sex at the exact same time that I learned about AIDS, right? There was never a time when one was separate from the other. And so, the whole kind of query behind this book was just a sort of question of, you know, how did that impact our understanding of intimacy? The fact that, you know, people that grew up in earlier decades had more of this notion, this kind of traditional notion that intimacy was healing, right? And like the healing quality of the physical touch, and intimacy was seen as this desirable thing. Um, And then I remember when I was growing up and it was like, you know, I was reading about Brian White, for instance, you know, and it was just like, oh, my God, you could go to the hospital and you could get blood, which we think of as being this, you know, healing force. uh, And that could kill you. Right. You could be physically intimate with someone and share this beautiful moment with them and that could kill you. Uh, and so that was kind of the original question. And I, when I first started off, I had no idea if it would lead anywhere. I just was interested to kind of see how was how were viral outbreaks being portrayed in the 1990s on television? And was there this sort of delayed reaction to AIDS and fear of intimacy and all that stuff? And that's really kind of where it started. And I didn't really know if there it would go anywhere. Um, but that was the original inspiration.
1: That's really interesting because I often talk to my students. I am probably just a couple years older than you. I went, graduated from high school in 1990 and was in college in the early 90s. And so that similar experience about thinking about AIDS and talk to my students about how, like for them, this is a, AIDS is not this disease that is going to kill the world right there's not this fear about it that that we had and how that sort of impacts how you look at these things and and so you start out by placing us or really situating us in this idea of this outbreak narrative so can you talk a little bit about that outbreak narrative and how you see that in relation to popular culture
0: yes absolutely and i think for me and it's funny because i know i mean i i teach undergrads and one of the things that I try to do in many of my classes is I try to teach my students the ability to recognize patterns and then to question why those patterns exist and to question where those patterns may diverge. And that applies to anything, right? That applies to traditions of culinary arts. You know, it applies to tradition of contemporary art. It applies to painting. It applies to literature. It applies to film. And so for me, it was kind of like, okay, well, let's look at this outbreak narrative, right? And the outbreak narrative begins with the discovery of some new virus. And then it follows it as that virus spreads throughout a town, a city, a country, a world, whatever, and traces the journey to neutralize or contain the virus. And what's really interesting is both the repetition of certain tropes from, you know, the early 1990s through present day, but then also to kind of look at which elements become foregrounded and why, and which elements become backgrounded and why. So one of the things that I unpack in the book is the latent racism that is intrinsically connected to the outbreak narrative. And it it can be revealing to trace how that othering shifts, right? And so you have narratives like Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman in in 95 where it's coming from Africa. And there was a whole crop of movies, both television, you know, made for TV movies and film movies where it was like, this virus is coming out of some primitive village in Africa and it's coming to white sterile contemporary America and America must fight it off. And then with Steven Soderbergh's contagion in 2011, It's coming from Asia, right? And it's coming from Asians who don't have proper hygiene. And it's, again, traveling to America, but also the world. And then after 9 11, you start getting into bioterrorism, which had been around before 9 11, of course. It just became more front loaded after 9 11. And that's when you start to see Muslim terrorists, you know, and sometimes explicitly Al Qaeda who are bringing the virus from their Middle Eastern country to America. Um, And then now what you're getting a lot of is the virus has already happened. We kind of fast forwarded through the outbreak and we're looking at the aftermath. And that's what you get in narratives like I am legend, the walking dead, dawn of the dead, um, etc, etc, last man on earth. I mean, there's no shortage. Uh, And so it's kind of like different elements become front loaded, depending on what's resonating in the zeitgeist.
1: Right. And one of the things you talk about that ties into this is that you look at the idea of film cycles and how sort of these, these tropes and these thematic tropes appear in these film cycles. And so can you talk to a little bit about that idea of the film cycle and how that you see the outbreak narrative sort of playing out in that? Absolutely. So, it's important to understand the distinction between film genres
0: with which I think people tend to be much more familiar and film cycles, right? So film genres have a sort of a set of, you know, rules, plot points, character elements, that remain relatively consistent over the decades, right? So in a romantic comedy from the 1940s, they're not using cell phones, obviously, but the core elements of the plot would readily translate to a romantic comedy from 2018, right? You have a lot of the same sort of plot points and the movies end about the same and they start about the same, et cetera. Whereas a film cycle has a much shorter shelf life. A film cycle tends to be sort of five to 10 years, and then it has to be reinvented. Now, that creates a whole new world of possibilities because the film cycle is much more responsive to things that are happening off screen. And so you can really learn a lot about real-life cultural historical social events by looking at film cycles and looking at what they're sort of responding to and that's why for instance in the book i look at what i consider you know the three different waves of the zombie narrative and each wave reflects a real-life contemporary fear right so when the the zombie narrative first began in the early 20th century It was. It came out of sort of Haitian Voodoo culture and sort of fear of this sort of, uh, you know, the the mystical other, and there were some religious overtones, and it was all about you know this fear of colonialism and slavery and all these issues that were real life issues in the early twentieth century, and then when zombies really kind of came back with George Romero in the middle of the twentieth century, they started tapping into. You know, anxieties about Vietnam, um, anxieties about capitalism, uh, fear of radiation, nuclear bombs, all that kind of stuff. And then, when the zombie, the next zombie wave came, which is really closely tied to the Resident Evil video game and the movie Twenty Eight Days Later in two thousand two, that's when you see the zombie um, intrinsically connected to infection right? And that speaks to our contemporary fears now of infection, right? And what, is, what does infection mean, right? It's not like we're lying in in, in our bed terrified we're going to catch a cold, right? The idea is fear of infection speaks to our fears of porous boundaries, right? It speaks to our fears that we cannot protect ourselves, either our body cannot physically protect us, right? Our immune system can't protect us. Our country can't protect us. There's nowhere we can go where we're safe from contagion. And that contagion can come from, you know, terrorism or it can come from Ebola. Uh, but that's sort of the most recent wave of our fear.
1: Right, and that's really interesting. I found it really interesting too when you sort of move into this idea of these film cycles and tropes, and then look at the importance of globalization in the, in continuing this cycle of fear. And so, can you talk a little bit about um, how globalization really sort of intensifies this fe- these fears, and then how you also saw this playing out in in television and film?
0: Yes, for sure. Again, it's funny because in some ways I'm an untraditional uh, film and media scholar, whatever you want to call it, because I feel like I'm more of like a sort of cultural studies anthropologist who uses these movies and TV shows as like little time capsules to unpack, to see, hey, what was going on in the American mind in the mid-90s or the early 20th century or whatever? Uh, And so- you have to you really look at, you unpack them as these examples more than like, oh, this is a case study of brilliant cinematography, right? It's like sort of looking at what these the subtext is. And so a, a, a very useful case study can be to compare Andromeda Strain, which came out in 1971, with Outbreak that came out in 1995, um, Wolfgang Peterson's Outbreak, with Steven Soderbergh's Contagion from 2011. And you can really sort of very clearly see the impact of globalization on our, you know, fears of disease, our vulnerability, et cetera. So in the Andromeda strain, the virus comes from outer space, right? So you have none of that sort of racial othering, right? It comes from outer space, it's on a rock, um, it affects this very contained town of Piedmont, you know, it doesn't, doesn't get out, Um, they, they, the scientists get the rock that has the virus on it. They bring it into the lab. The lab is like six stories underground. I mean, it's like, you couldn't get more contained if you tried. Right. Um, and then in outbreak, you have this clear trajectory, right? Where you can trace, oh, the virus came from Africa, right? It goes to Jimbo in California and then Jimbo gets on a plane and goes to Boston to visit his girlfriend, and so he brings the virus with him. But you can very easily, you know, pinpoint the exact path, and they have a list of like the people that are infected, and it's a much, it's a much more um, kind of manageable outbreak. And then if you look at Contagion, which came out in 2011, sure the virus starts in Asia, but within the first like five minutes of the movie, you see it you know, it's in it's in Paris, it's in London, it's in Minneapolis, right? It's like, boom, 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 all these cities. And then one of the um, interesting techniques that Soderbergh uses is the first time you visit any place, you get the location, right? So you, you see, oh, I'm in Minneapolis or I'm in London. But then after the first time, he doesn't do that anymore. So sometimes you can tell where you are, but it's not always really clear. And the implication sort of is there's not much of a difference, right? It's all kind of the same place. It's all people who are dying. And you also get a lot of video conferencing, which I think is fascinating because again, there's this notion that communication is everywhere. Right. So in outbreak, it's much more localized. Right. Dustin Hoffman has to travel or Sam Daniels has to travel to the specific town where he then gets on the local news and makes an announcement to the local residents. Right. Whereas in Contagion, you're just jumping around the world and all these different scientists and doctors are watching the exact same video presentation in conference rooms around the world. So you can really see how our understanding of the world and our place in it has been impacted as a result of globalization.
1: Right. And I thought and you mentioned this to 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 sort of further that or further some of the things you talk about in here. As you were talking, it reminded me of I found it really interesting when you talked about the fact that at a number of times, these films sort of, you know, or the the films or the television shows spoke to what events that were going on at that time. So they either had to, or even the video games, had to like wait on their release or they had to change some aspect of it because of what was happening globally or in the world at that time. And so can you talk a little bit about that as well and how that impacts some of this? Yeah, I think that it's very easy
0: to think that, oh, the stuff Stuff that's happening on screen isn't really so connected to things that are happening in real life, right? They seem like, you know, oh, it's, it's like escapism, right? So it's like you go and you see this movie, and uh, it's, it's a completely separate from everyday life. It's complete fantasy, it's complete escapism, whatever. Um, And I think you have to remember that, the people who are making these movies are living in the same world that we're living in, right? So they're going to be influenced by things that are happening in real life. So you will have movies that will be made while there is a real life outbreak happening. And then you will have a movie that will be released when a real life outbreak is happening. And you can't You can't pretend that they didn't have anything to do with each other. So for instance, when 28 Days Later was in production in England, you had the foot and mouth outbreak, um, which was happening at the same time. It was a highly infectious disease that affected cattle, pigs, sheep, goats, etc. Plunged the agricultural industry into its worst crisis um, for decades. And this was happening in the UK at the same time that they were making 28 Days Later, right? And so Danny Boyle has said... You know, that he recognized parallels between the panic, the hysteria, the misinformation that was happening in real life and what was what he was creating on the screen. Um, and it's also interesting because I know when I show 28 Days Later to my students, there's a really moving part where um, the main character has kind of just woken up from the coma. So he's missed, you know, the the 28 days of social collapse and he's wandering around the streets of London and he finds this wall that's just been covered with posters, signs, cards from people who are looking for their loved ones who have disappeared. And the immediate reaction is, oh, Danny Boyle was inspired by 9-11 because, that's what happened at the World Trade Center after 9-11, where people were posting these heartbreaking signs, you know, have you seen this person, whatever. Um, and actually, that was filmed before 9-11. So it's it's almost like these narratives kind of foreshadow things that are going to happen. Um, and I know, like, I spoke with the guy who wrote the screenplay for Covert 1, The Hades Factor, which is the one where the virus is coming from al-qaeda and terrorists and stuff um and he said you know that yeah he'd been reading these news reports and it seemed like it was inevitable that there would be some sort of a conflict Mm -hmm. um but anyway just to to get back to viruses sars the outbreak of sars in 2003 impacted the american release of 28 days later which of course meant that people who were watching that movie were thinking about SARS, which helps sort of blur that line between fact and fiction. Um, The Dawn of the Dead remake that Zack Snyder made was shot during the SARS outbreak. The premiere of um, Resident Evil Apocalypse was postponed due to the same SARS outbreak. So you just have all these really interesting parallels that make these movies feel not quite so fantastical. Because it's like you're reading about them in the paper and then it's also happening on your movie screen. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so terrified of things like an Ebola outbreak, because they're, they're seeing this kind of fact and fiction blurring.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when reading your book and this idea of fact and fiction. And also um, you, you brought up 9-11 and some of the things that happened. 24 was one of those shows that sort of got me <laughs> through graduate school at times, right? And just reading it made me really think about like, the ways in which that, you know, a show like 24, and even maybe The Walking Dead right now, to an extent, played on some of those fears, right? And that idea of the terrorism outbreak. And so can you talk a bit about that, um, those sort of the, the terrorism outbreaks, what was going on after 9-11, and how that sort of played out? in these shows, these, this sort of television and film? Yeah, of course.
0: Uh, I mean, I think for 9-11, obviously, was extremely, I mean, I think any, any word I say sort of underplays it, but it was shocking, traumatic, disturbing, upsetting, terrifying, because it was this attack on American soil. And I think Americans, for a long time, have felt like we're relatively immune. Right. So there's a long history. I mean, if you look at like, you know, the conflict with the IRA in the UK and stuff like that, there's a long history of you know, terrorism and uh, sort of civilian in, uh, civilians being injured in you know, um, these attacks that have these sort of agendas, et etc. Et but in America, we have this sort of placid naivete where we, you know, or at least we did, where we felt like, oh, that's not going to come here. Right. You know, World War Two happened over there. The Korean War happened over there. And so I think Americans had this complacency, which I would not say was shared by the rest of the world. But we were in this sort of unique place where we felt like, oh, yeah, you know, we're over here. And even Pearl Harbor, while obviously that was you know deeply traumatic, it didn't get the same kind of news footage that 9-11 did purely because, you know, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have that kind of Immediate access to information that can then go viral, and everyone in their homes is looking at the exact same footage. It's you know, it's, there's just a little bit of a distancing. Whereas with nine eleven, I don't even know. I think it was like for at least twenty four hours, if not forty eight hours, after the attacks happened, you just kept seeing them being played over and over and over again on TV. Right? It was almost like you just kept reliving this attack. And I remember because I was in New York at the time and when the first one you know when the first plane flew into the world trade center people thought it was an accident right a really terrible accident but you know it was an accident and then i was at the gym and they had you know they had all the the tv stations were tuned to the news and good morning america and all that stuff and then the second plane flew in and it was just people's faces just turned white you know because it was like oh my god this is actually an attack. And it's interesting because I, when I listen to um, news footage about what's going on right now with with Russian collusion and all that, and they say that our intelligence agencies had a, quote, failure of imagination. You know, and that they kind of they didn't imagine that this kind of thing would be possible. And that's exactly what happened with 9-11, that there was this failure of the imagination. But once you see it play out once, it's like, oh God, this could happen. Right. Suddenly we in America are under threat and, you know, we have those the color coded threat warnings, you know, and it's like, oh, we're, you know, level orange or level red or whatever. And there's no level for nothing. Right. There's it's there's no concept that like, oh, on Wednesday, there's no there's no fear. Right. There's no possibility of attack. It's no 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's going to be this possibility of attack. And so that's obviously going to both be played up on these TV shows, right, because that's how you get people to watch your TV shows. But the TV shows are also going to kind of respond to it in a way that can be, you know, it's like, it's like when, you're, when you're stressed out about something, you want to watch those stresses play out in a way that doesn't actually affect you right? But that, you know, that personally, your body isn't in danger, but you're watching these narratives play out. And so what I think is fascinating about shows like 24 is they were already in production before 9-11, right? But it was like they became all the more relevant as the world turned upside down, right? And suddenly it was like, no, 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 we, we are well aware of the fact that there are these high level conspiracies in our government and we can't trust our government to save us. And we need, Oh my God, where is Jack Bauer? Why can't he save us now? Right. We need this sort of rogue actor who, who can save the day. And it's this, you know, it's a, it's gripping and suspenseful for the duration of the season, but there's always this reassurance that at the end of the day, Jack Bauer will save it, will save us, you know, um, and so I think these shows are really fascinating because they speak to that. They speak to exactly what Americans were worried about in the years after 9-11.
1: Yeah, and can you talk a little bit too about that? how that also um, plays out with the idea of conspiracy theories, right? Because you talk about that and that sort of feeds into this and feeds, yeah, like between the X-Files and 24, I was just, I was reading your book going, and then I need to go back and watch this. And I was thinking about even even the X-Files, I'm, you know, the reboot of the X-Files, thinking about how some of this plays out. But the conspiracy theories, like one of the reasons I love, I still love the X-Files is, you know, you know, Fox and Fox's idea, you know, and how, you know, Fox and Scully play out. And there's some traditional and non-traditional gender roles that are going on there as well. But can you talk a little bit about that idea of conspiracy theory and how that plays out with this, this sort of these narratives? as well? Yes,
0: I became very interested in the prevalence of conspiracy theories. And obviously you have you know, the X-Files is before 9-11. And so you, it wasn't like the conspiracy theories came out of nowhere, right? It was just, as I was saying before with the film cycle, the conspiracy theories just really got front loaded after 9-11. Um, but you have a lot of these narratives and I talk about in the book, this movie, Toxic Skies with Anne Hayes, where it's about a, a conspiracy between the military, the American military and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, And of course, in 24, it's like every season, there's a different conspiracy. And the X-Files really played up on this notion that our government knows so much more than they're willing to tell us, right? And that there are these kind of, you know, these shadowy men in dark corners who are furthering their own agendas. And we may only see 1% of what's going on, but they've got a plan, right? And I was, I kind of, I started asking myself, you know, Why would we have all these conspiracy theories? And obviously after 9-11, there was another kind of rush of conspiracy theories. And I think your your instinctual response would be, oh, but conspiracy theories are upsetting, right? Because why would it be comforting to think that there are, you know, shadowy men in dark corners smoking cigarettes and planning the deep state revolution or whatever? You know, you think that would keep you up at night. But actually, there's something reassuring about a conspiracy theory, because it's more terrifying to think, oh, our government is just incompetent. Right. Because that means 9-11 could happen again tomorrow. Right. If our intelligence networks aren't set up to protect us from something of such massive scope, what can they do? Right. And it's like, you know, when when AIDS first um, emerged, it took the government years before they even would acknowledge there was a problem, much less start putting money towards, you know, research and all that stuff. So it's like, oh, my God, does our government not care about us if we're dying? And so that's actually scarier. That's a scarier um, realization than no, 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 no. It's people have a plan. Right. You might not know what the plan is, but there's someone behind the scenes who's got a plan. And that is more reassuring than, oh, no, they're just incompetent or, oh, no, there's just, you know, um evil people out to line their pockets with your pensions or whatever, right? So it's more reassuring to think, oh, no, no, there's a logic and a pattern to things, right? There's an end goal. You just don't know what it is, but someone's in charge.
1: No, it's really, it's sort of interesting. I've been um, really fascinated by the show Timeless, and mm. I don't know if you've watched it. I haven't. Should I watch it? Well, I think it's really it's not as much about outbreak as much about sort of going back into history and making, you know, changing history. But there's there's an element of this sort of a larger conspiracy as to why this needs to be done and what's happening and what are who are the masterminds and, and sort of um making those historical, making changes in history or planting certain people and things in historical context to change our outcome, right? Um, And so, and when you're talking, it reminded me of that idea as well. Like, so it's not like what is happening is not because we are problematic. It's because these problematic people have thought further ahead than our government could ever think ahead, right? Or than we can ever think ahead. Um, So another thing that, That sort of ties in with this that I found interesting that you looked at is sort of, or you talked about a bit, is like how sort of traditional gender roles play out in some of these conspiracies. Some of this um, sort of, so we have this outbreak narrative, we have these things going on, but they're still very, uh, in many ways, very gender conforming. Can you talk a little bit about that and how sort of gender roles plays out? You mentioned race as well earlier, so that as well. One thing that I think
0: is really interesting about the outbreak narrative, and this, again, was something that I I had no idea it was there until I started, you know, really watching these movies and TV shows, is they are kind of empowering for women. And you wouldn't think that, right? Because when you think of, you know, Jack Bauer, 24, it's very much the kind of conventional action movie where the, you know, the rogue, the male rogue hero saves the day, right? And so, yeah, you, you do have those narratives, but those narratives have now really become kind of painfully out of date. And what you see now much more frequently is, first of all, this notion that one man can't save the world. Right. That's just not possible. And you see in, if, you know, again, if you go back to that case study of outbreak versus contagion in outbreak, it is more of the sort of classic hero action movie where Sam Daniels saves the world and saves his woman at the same time. Right. Um, but then in contagion, it's all about these networks. Okay, so that's one significant shift where it's now impossible for one man on his own or one woman on her own to save the world, right? There has to be some kind of a network in place. So we're already looking at the failure of the traditional rogue um, male protagonist, right? That's not enough to save the world. Jack Bauer is no longer enough to save the world. So that's a shift from the individual to the network. But then another layer of the shift is, not only can the solitary male action hero no longer save the world, but in a lot of these narratives, it's actually the woman who saves the world. And I found that really fascinating. And I know that in, in science fiction, you do have a tradition of sort of, um, you know, the the sexy female lab assistants, right? I mean, it's not like there there were no women in science fiction before the outbreak narrative. I'm not saying that at all. But I do find it interesting just in terms of frequency in how many of these narratives the world is saved by the actions of a woman, right? And maybe she's not doing it single-handedly. Maybe she's part of a network. But she does an awful lot single-handedly. And for sort of my own curiosity, I made this spreadsheet, which now lives on the supplementary site for the book because it was literally too big to print in the book. Like we just, we couldn't, we couldn't get it to look good in the book. So we ended up resorting to just having it be this sort of, you know, PDF that you can look at online in glorious color. But I have a list of, Basically, every outbreak narrative that I talk about in the movie, and I talk about who the the female scientist slash doctor is in those movies. And of course, you know, with every rule, you have an exception. And The Walking Dead, for instance, doesn't really have scientists working to find a cure because that's not what that movie's about. Uh, the TV show is about. Um, but in a lot of these narratives, you keep having sexy female scientist. And it's kind of great because it can be like Tiffany Amber Thiessen, right? It can be Nicolette Sheridan. Um, And she's, so yes, she's often attractive, right? Um, I think the only, and I hope, I mean, people might disagree with me, but I think the only quote unquote, not traditionally feminine female scientist was in the 1971 Andromeda Strain. And what's interesting still about that is that in the book on which the film was based, that character wasn't even a woman. That character was a man. So when they turned that book into a movie, they went out of their way to add in this sort of female character. So even though she's very masculine and she seems, you know, kind of very stereotypically lesbian or whatever you want to call it, um she's it's still a woman right and she still plays a very important role in discovering the virus and so there's sort of it's again because again it speaks to where the traditional male action hero has failed and the female scientist/doctor has this combination of empathy observation skills intelligence that allows her to put things together that the men miss. Um, and then she's also not married, which I find really fascinating. You know, that she's, it's not like, like every once in a while, you know, you you see like this strong, sassy, independent lady on TV or movies, but she's just temporarily singled until she finds like, you know, her true love or whatever. Um, whereas in these narratives, that doesn't happen, right? Um, she's too busy saving the world to think about getting married or having kids or whatever. And that happens, you know, and I think we talked about the X-Files, which I think is an excellent example um, with the character of Dana Scully, who in many ways is playing the traditional role that you'd think a man would play. Right. And she's very, she's pragmatic she's got you know she's educated she's sensible she's amazingly good at putting two and two together and Mulder's the one who's running around having these sort of like you know emotional responses to things so and you know scully of course she never gets married she's in her 30s she's tough she's passionate and even though when the show first started it seems like they went out of their way to make her kind of frumpy looking. She does become more traditionally attractive as the show goes on, but she doesn't lose her power. In fact, the opposite. Right. She becomes more and more powerful as the show continues. When the show first starts, she's very much portrayed as Fox's sidekick. Right. And then she really comes into her own. Um so, I, you know, so that's just that's just one case study. Um, but in movie after movie after movie, you know, in, in Pandemic, which was a um, made-for-TV movie, you have, again, Tiffany Thiessen, who saves the day, right? She's the one who's able, and maybe it's because as a woman, she's a little bit of an outsider, but she's the one who's able to make the connections that end up saving the world. Um, and I think it's interesting when they remade the Andromeda strain uh, for television in 2008, they added more women and they made the women more attractive, but the women's intelligence isn't diminished. Right. I mean, you have Viola Davis, you know, who's totally in charge and doing her thing. And it's like, she's a woman, but she's, you know, she's definitely not like eye candy. You know, she is like taking stuff on. Um, And in contagion in 2011, you have three uh, sort of strong, no nonsense women without whom the viral outbreak might never have been contained, right? It's not even like they, they they don't play minor roles. They are playing major roles. Um, And so I think that's really worth paying attention to because, you know, everyone, I mean, even with the whole Me Too movement and Hollywood and sort of this idea that, you know, Hollywood is so sexist and so male-dominated and it's kind of like, but wait a second, what's happening in the outbreak narrative because it's not Mm male-dominated?
1: Right. And I want to like, sort of shift to come back to that to talk about the, zom- the zombies right because you move because i think that plays out and you talk about the walking dead and high zombie which i think is one of the best things on television right now oh my god yes <laughs> <clears throat> like it's- it makes me so happy when it's back um because but but there's a there's a role of women in that sort of zombie sort of post-apocalyptic outbreak narrative and what and especially you talk a bit about like the role carol on the walking dead and how how these certain and on all the women on the walking dead and how these certain things need to happen in order for that um change to occur for these women, at least in these sort of post-apocalyptic narratives to, to take sort of take control in a way?
0: I think The Walking Dead is an excellent example. And it's funny because I wrote, uh, I had a paper that I wrote on The Walking Dead for a conference that I, I can't remember, it was early on in The Walking Dead. Uh, and in the, in the paper, I talked about how The Walking Dead is very much playing on the tropes of the American Western. You know, and you have Rick as sort of like the sheriff uh, who's kind of, you know, coming into town, save the day. And when the show first started, the women also had these very traditional roles, a la, you know, the John Ford, John Wayne kind of Western, um, where you see them, you know, doing laundry. Right. They're doing laundry. They're making food. They're staying at the camp. They're taking care of the kids. You know, it's just like cliches one on one. Um, And then I had to update that because, first of all, Carol, right? Carol is a fascinating character. You know, like, again, she starts off as this, um, you know, she's an an abused wife. She's very much defined by her role as a mother, right? She loses her child. That becomes like the sort of major Carol plot point in the beginning. Uh, And then she becomes this warrior, and you're just like, whoa, where'd that come from? And then Michonne, I mean, that was just a game changer. I mean, it was just funny because I, I had this essay and I had to go back and like update it because then Michonne shows up and it's like, oh my God, I'm totally wrong about this. And I don't know because, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if it was like notes from the studio and someone said like, hey, more women are watching this show than we expected. So we've really got to sort of shift our portrayals of women I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but The Walking Dead is an excellent example of a show that started off with these very traditional gender roles. And now it's like, I've lost track of how many times Carol has saved the day. You know, I've idea. like Michonne saves the day basically every episode. Um, so I think that's a really interesting example of just how, you know, how different the outbreak narrative is from the traditional male action hero you know, with the sort of very linear narrative where, you know, Jack Bauer shows up, he saves the day, things go back to normal, right? Um, Bruce Willis shows up, saves the day, things go back to normal. And now it's like, that's no longer, that, that feels kind of outdated in terms of the outbreak narrative. Yes, you can still see those traditional narratives play out in Hollywood, but there's something really interesting going on here. And then to go back to your point of I, Zombie, one, it's funny because I... I dragged my heels a bit on watching it because I was like, I was like, oh, it just looks dumb. And then uh, one of my students actually said, "Hey, you should watch *I Zombie* because we were talking about zombies in class and everything." And she was like, "You should really watch it." And I was like, "Okay, you know, in the interests of being sort of thorough, I'll you know go and sit down and watch a couple episodes." And then I was riveted, and I agree with you that I think it is one of the best things on TV now, and not only for how it reinvents the zombie narrative, right, in a way that is completely new, fresh, unexpected, etc. But I do think that the character of Olivia Moore, the, the female protagonist, is one of the more complex female characters on TV today. And I love, I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for all those ABC dramas, you know, with the strong female lead. And I, I've, I love a good Olivia Pope moment, you know, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that characters like um, Olivia Pope or Alicia on The Good Wife, while they are fantastic to watch and they're these strong, no-nonsense women, their characters are still, I mean, Two-dimensional seems harsh, but Olivia Pope in season five isn't that different than Olivia Pope in season two, right? So there's still this sort of consistency, right? So she's more nuanced than two-dimensional, but it's still, she. in some ways, she feels like she's a little bit of a plot device, right? So it's like her her personality is used to further the plot more than let's get to know the nuances of Olivia Pope. And what is so fascinating about iZombie is they have this gimmick where, the, for those people who haven't watched it, um, where, so Olivia Moore is a zombie, but she's a completely functional zombie, right? Other than the fact that she eats brains and she's got this sort of white hair and pale skin, she's like an ordinary human. Right. You mean you, you would never know that there was anything different about her, you know, and she, but what's interesting about her. And she's a, she's, she's a zombie foodie as
1: well. She likes likes to cook up her. uh, Right. So that,
0: that becomes, that's the gimmick, right? So she, she works for the medical examiner and she works, she helps out the police department. And so whenever someone is murdered, she eats their brains and then kind of experiences elements of their personality, which can be useful in determining who was the murderer. So that's like the the sort of the procedural gimmick behind uh, every episode. But as a result of her eating these brains, she is able to take on these different characteristics. So she still remains Olivia, right? It's not like she becomes Bob the mailman, right? She's still Olivia, but she'll take on characteristics of... Um, you know, the socialite or the porn star or the exotic dancer or the dominatrix or the kindergarten teacher. And she'll take it on. I mean, she'll eat brains that belong to men as well as women, right? So it's just, you really get this notion that like a woman can be anything, right? So she'll eat the brains of a male, per, a male teacher and take on elements of their personality in this way that I think captures how mercurial all of us can be in real life but in a way that hasn't really been communicated thus far on television
1: yeah no there's some fluidity that plays out in that that may and i i love veronica mars is one of my all-time favorites and so i i had to watch i zombie because of you know rob thomas but and then when you have a character named major lily white I can't, you know, <laughs> it's just... I mean, the brilliance of that show, it's like every time I
0: watch an episode, I'm just like, Rob Thomas, oh my God, I want to live inside your brain. And what's funny is I I've, i liked Veronica Mars, you know, when it was on, but I haven't watched it since then. And I only watched iZombie, again, because I was writing this book and my students said to, like, I, was, I wasn't this Rob Thomas aficionado. And then the next book that I wrote, which I just finished recently, looks at the private detective in film and television. And it was just funny because I was trying to figure out how to conclude the book. And I was sort of thinking about contemporary representations of detectives. In particular, uh, I was looking for sort of children, right? So not adult. And then I was like, oh, my God, Veronica Mars. And I went back and rewatched every episode of Veronica Mars. And so that's now a huge component in that book. So I sort of, I have this joke with Rob Thomas and it's like, oh, my career is basically built, you know, around the work of Rob Thomas. Uh, but he, he creates these really interesting female characters. I mean, there's, there's so much going on and there's so much to say. Um, and Veronica Mars in many ways, is sort of the most radical female private eye who has been on television. And what's, what's crazy is that's kind of old news, right? I mean, it's, it hasn't been on the air for a while, but still... She is able to do things that other female private eyes have not been able to in the year since, despite whatever social or economic progress women have made. Right.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I could probably talk to you about Veronica Mars forever. We'll do that when the next book comes out. (laughs) That sounds awesome because, yes, I have lots of she makes me very happy. Um, but it, just to to go back to the zombies, um, can you just give a little bit of that um, history of how you see sort of the the original sort of Haitian zombie and how that plays out differently in this present day? Totally. I mean, it's sort of like where to begin.
0: Um, I know when I was putting together the class that I teach that's based on this topic. I initially started with Night of the Living Dead to kind of, you know, preface sort of Zombie 101. And then I realized that that was actually a fundamental error because my students had no idea of anything zombie related prior to Night of the Living Dead. And so I had to sort of revamp my lecture. And one of the things that's interesting about zombies is it's not that hard to go back to square one. Right. It's, they haven't really been around that long and it's very easy to trace their trajectory. So unlike, you know, vampires, which have more of this sort of European Gothic history, zombies are very much an American thing. Right. And they're very much a a relatively recent sort of within the last hundred years, American thing. Um, and I think that that's something that we forget. And also what's interesting is. the the ways that that the zombie has sort of unfolded. So that kind of gets to your question. So when the zombies first appeared, it was coming from sort of Afro-Caribbean folklore and the word zombie can be traced back to West Africa. And it meant not only a body without a soul, but a soul without a body. So it wasn't really like living death. It was just sort of a body without a soul without a body. But then, as a result of the Atlantic slave trade, um, this concept of living death sort of became part of the zombie narrative, and it was really sort of um, key to slaves in the French in the French colonies in Haiti and, and um, that surrounding area because it represented an extension of the bondage that they had in life. Right, so it was sort of like oh, my God, I am now a slave for the rest of my living life, and then I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be brought back, and I will continue to be a slave. So I'm basically going to be a slave for all eternity. Uh, So that was really where the notion came from, and that's where you have one of the key differences between zombies then and zombies now, which is that there was the, the master, right? Because, of course a slave is controlled by someone, is owned by someone. So rather than the masses of sort of zombies that you would, see now in these sort of films and tv shows you'd have a handful of zombies or one zombie that would be controlled by the master um and then the master would sort of you know tell him what to do et cetera. And so that was really where the zombie narrative first began um, and then that's what you see in movies like white zombie um, and the book the magic island and it was kind of this fascination with haitian culture and voodoo and this sort of you know this, this sort of exotic thing um, and so that was what you really started to see in the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, and then all, and then what else is interesting, and this goes back to kind of the notion of the cycle and how things get front-loaded, you start getting Nazi zombies um, as a result of World War II. And that, I mean, again, it's not like all zombies became Nazi zombies, It just that starts to appear as an element in the narrative. Um, and then zombie narratives kind of died down for a while uh, and then when they came back, um, really with sort of Night of the Living Dead and that sort of sort of the second wave, um, that's when you get uh, the zombies are much more graphic. Right. So the idea of like a Night of the Living Dead where the zombies are, you know, basically cannibals eating eating people um, and you have this like the horrific scene in the basement of my of living dead where the girl, the, the girl zombie eats her parents. Uh, and so that was something that you did. You obviously didn't have, you know, in the earlier incarnation. And you also start to have the notion of the hordes of zombies. Um, and I've read a couple different theories for where that came from. And some people tie it to the discovery of the concentration camps uh, at the end of World War II. And the just, I mean, you know, people knew that the concentration camps were happening, but they hadn't seen them with their own eyes. And then to go there and you see just these, you know, hundreds and thousands of people who basically have had their soul stripped out of them, just kind of these gaunt, almost faceless, identityless workers. Um, and again, it, it wasn't just one. It would be thousands. Um, and so you really start to see the idea of the sort of the, the horde that has no individual identity. Um, these kind of non-men who don't really seem alive, but they also aren't dead. Um, Also during the Korean War, it was um, a military strategy on the part of the Korean army to send thousands of barely armed Korean infantry to just kind of overwhelm the better equipped American armies. So the American armies really had to, in order to to achieve their goals, had to just mow down these sort of piles of corpses, um, which obviously also was deeply traumatic and upsetting. Um, so that's, that's I think, part of where you start to get into this notion of this, the horde of the living dead. Um, and then, of course, you have the nuclear bombs, um, which were used by the Americans in Japan. And that's where you get the idea of like no place being safe. Right. And so it's like all these different elements that then come together. And so then when you have Night of the Living Dead, you've got the masses. Right. You've got the the zombies that are caused by radiation, although it's never explained exactly how that happened. Um, And you have this notion that even in the home, you're not safe. Right. Because traditionally we think, oh, at least if you can get home, you're okay, Right. And in Night of the Living Dead, it's like you're going to die in your home. Um, so that's kind of like the second wave and then the third wave which is you know the one that deals with infection and was really sort of launched by resident evil and 28 days later that's when the zombies are sped up right so like when i show my students uh you know nine of the living dead their first reaction is they kind of laugh at the first zombie because he's just sort of like lumbering across the graveyard and it's like what is this um and now you know you see the zombies and they move really fast. They transform really fast. They don't always have to die to transform. Um, and so it's, it that kind of speaks to the acceleration of our contemporary culture and how everything is just sort of happening faster, but also this notion that you don't have to have your brains eaten to become a zombie, right? So like an eye zombie, you get scratched by a zombie and that's it. That's all it takes. Um, and so I think that also speaks to sort of, you know, the heightened vulnerability. And then again, the zombies aren't controlled by anyone. So that speaks to our fears of sort of lack of agency, um, lack of identity. We're, again, we're just kind of the masses. And that's what the opening sequence to Shaun of the Dead does so brilliantly, where it just really shows us like, you know, wait, are we all already zombies? You know? And again, of course, in The Walking Dead, it's like, we're all, we're already infected you know, it's just kind of a matter of time until we become a zombie. And then I think there's like that, the, the hilarious meme where it's like, you know, all the people that are walking down the street, looking at their phones, and it says something like, you know, why be afraid of a zombie apocalypse when it's already here. So I think that those are the sort of like the main differences between the sort of three different waves of the zombie narrative.
1: Right. And, what do you think you talk a bit about to the site, like the walking dead and the popularity of zombies. And what do you think it is about this narrative right now that makes it so popular? That is the
0: million dollar question. Um, which <laughs> I don't even know if Robert Kirkman, the guy who created the walking dead knows the answer to that explicitly, but I do know that he said, you know, that um, one of the reasons for the show's success is that, during apocalyptic times people think apocalyptically right and so i it's it's one of the things i talk about in the book is this notion of risk theory risk awareness and we are now safer than we've ever been before right i mean it's like we are you know, we're we ha- we're living in, in you know we have better health standards. We have better medicine. We have air conditioning. We have window screens. You know, we're we're not at risk of getting typhoid. Um, so in in many ways, we're safer than we've ever been. But because of things like social media, political agendas, etc., we're more aware of the things that could kill us than we've ever been. Um, and so that creates this sort of cycle of you know fear and anxiety which The Walking Dead can um, sort of satisfy because, again, you're safe on your couch at home, but you're watching this sort of end of the world play out, and it's fun to kind of imagine, like, oh, what would I do if I was in that situation? Plus, I think there's there's so much going on in the world right now that makes us feel as if the end of the world could happen next week, right? And it's like, And it's not just, you know, nuclear war, which people hadn't thought about for decades and now suddenly we're getting news articles that are like what to do in the case of a nuclear bomb. Uh, But I think we're also getting, you know, you get these apocalyptic stories about climate change. Right. And I think there's this very real sense that, the world in 40, 50 years may no longer be sustainable, right? Is Miami going to be underwater? Is New York going to be underwater? Um, Every year keeps being, you know, the hottest year on record. We're having more and more storms, natural disasters, that kind of thing. Countries are going bankrupt. Our national debt is up to a trillion. I mean, it's like there's no shortage of things that you could point to that would seem to indicate that the world might end in our lifetime. And so I think that's constantly at the back of people's minds. And so we have this fascination of like, okay, well, what will happen when that happens? Right. So I think it's like, it's, it's like, what's, what would happen? Let me, let me just kind of take a peek into the future to imagine what it would be like. And also what I would be like in that situation. I also think that there's been this, there's kind of this saturation of what I call white noise, although that's not entirely accurate, where it's like just, I mean, we have to keep up with our Instagram and our Facebook and our credit card bills and our mortgage payments and our health insurance. And there's like no job security. And it's like, there's the the everyday stresses of normal life can be really grueling, right? And so there's something almost liberating about Wow. Imagine if tomorrow I woke up and I had no student loan debt, I had no credit card debt, I had no mortgage, and all I had to worry about was finding food and surviving. You know, like that, there's an element of that that seems kind of pleasant and exciting, you know, because it's like, oh my God, I've cleared out all the white noise, and now I just have to worry about staying alive. Right. (laughs) So I think think those (laughs) are sort of the two big
1: things going on here. Staying alive in those zombies. Right. So, we've been talking for a while. So, I don't know if there's anything like final thoughts you have about your book, or if you want, you talked a little bit, you mentioned a little bit about the book you're finishing up, or there's any last words, or you want to talk a little bit more about your next project. But. Oh, I mean, I'm happy to talk about anything.
0: Um, I think we started off the conversation by saying that sort of when you, I think we were talking about like the inspiration behind the project. And so one of the things that I'm always drawn to is patterns and noticing sort of these patterns in pop culture and where those patterns remain consistent and then where they get reinvented. And then of course, asking Why does that remain consistent and why does that get reinvented? And so that's, you know, those were the underlying questions behind the outbreak narrative. You know, how are portrayals of viral outbreaks um, unfolding on film and television and where do they remain almost ridiculously consistent, right? It's like plot point ABC, there it is again, ABC, and also where it gets reinvented. And the private detective in Los Angeles um, is something that I've been interested in, I mean, I, I grew up loving mysteries. You know, I mean, I grew up with Encyclopedia Brown and Nancy Drew and Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes and all that. So I've always been into mysteries. Um, and then when I moved to Los Angeles in 2006, I especially enjoyed reading mysteries that were set in L.A. because I live in L.A. And so it was just kind of fun to see how L.A. was so in, uh, intrinsic to this narrative, right? And you have the detective, you know, like the Philip Marlowe driving down Sunset Boulevard and the Orange Groves and all that stuff. And so I just kind of got interested in the private detective and what, is, what are the patterns and where does it stay the same? or does it evolve, of course? Um, and so, like, if you look at The Big Sleep and Philip Marlowe and then you compare it to, you know, the works of, like, Michael Connelly, the, um, and like the Lincoln lawyer, the Lincoln lawyer and Philip Marlowe are kind of the same person, you know. I mean, it's it's really interesting because obviously, you know, he's been modernized, um, but the the core component of their characteristics are the same. And I was like, that's really weird because it's been you know it's been a hundred years. Um, And then I started kind of examining the characteristics of the private detective and I was like, okay, so we have this pattern, right, of the white male private detective. But then what happens when the detective is black? What happens when the detective is a woman? What happens when the detective is a child? And how do their relationships to not only their occupation change, but their relationship to Los Angeles? Um, and so those were sort of the, so it's interesting because it's kind of the same methodology that I used for going viral. It's just applying them to a different set of kind of content of narratives. Um, and so I think that's what sort of I find really interesting. And so I always, you know, encourage my students to just sort of pay attention to these patterns and, to ask questions, you know, it's like, why do, why do we keep having a sexy female scientist save the day? You know, like, it's like, it happens once or twice, okay, maybe that's a fluke. But when it happens 20 times, that's not a fluke, right? And so even if the, the director or the writer doesn't have some specific agenda, right, they, they, they have some kind of plot point where it's like, oh, I have to use a female because of XYZ, even if they're not conscious of it, Why are they using a sexy female scientist? Why is it that in a a world that's so dominated by men who keep saving the day, why in the outbreak narrative, is it persistently the female who saves the day? And then it's kind of like, I like to think about those questions. Um, So that's sort of, I think, what what drives me and what I encourage listeners um, to think about as well.
1: Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Again, this was Dahlia Schweitzer with Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World. Dahlia, thanks for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me.